Welcome to Swift Unwrapped, a show about the Swift programming language and other Swift.org uh, open source projects. My name's JP Simard. And I'm Jesse Squires. And uh, today we're following up uh, on previous episodes about ABI stability. We're going to continue uh, the story. Um, today we'll be talking about uh, mangling and calling conventions in Swift. But before we do that, the previous uh, ABI stability episode about data layout and uh, type metadata, we had to kind of skim over type metadata. So we'll cover uh, some of that to begin with before getting into the newer topics. Yeah, and I'd even say there's um, a bit of stuff to get into even before that, uh, follow up from two episodes ago on the big picture of ABI stability. Mm-hmm. Um, there were uh, a few things that we had said that weren't quite right. Um, we got some very thoughtful responses from the community and some Apple folks really clarifying some of the stuff that, that we had said. Uh, and, you know, this is probably going to be a theme moving forward with ABI stability stuff where it's kind of tricky to, to get it right. I think we said something along the lines that uh, source stability was somewhat of a prerequisite for ABI stability. And that's really not the case at all. Um, you know, the, the analogy that you can make is that C has a stable ABI uh, that a bunch of other languages with completely different syntax can still call into. Right. Right. Where this starts being kind of closer to what is actually true is that the standard library for Swift needs to be API stable. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that it needs to preserve the same syntax, but all of the declarations and all of its surface a- API surface area needs to be maintained um, uh, for the duration of a stable ABI period. So, for example... Um, you know, an API on uh, array, uh, array.count, you know, needs to preserve the same uh, function signature and the same API, even though the syntax for it might change. So for example, like you might um, reorder some of the ways in which it's uh, presented as an API or uh, Swift could change the way that... um, syntax in the language works like instead of having uh dash greater than for the return symbol it could have equal greater than changing the arrow style or dash dash greater than and that or, would preserve the api mm-hmm. um w- so really the syntax being stable isn't really important here it's more that there's a way to transform whatever previous syntaxes to the current syntax, right, in the way that modules are parsed, um, but that source stability isn't a requirement for for ABI stability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think the message we were trying to convey there was more of under the umbrella topic of compatibility, you have one aspect that is source compatibility and the other, which is uh, ABI stability, which then breaks down into other topics. Yeah. But uh we definitely 
um, said some incorrect stuff in the past, and that's why we wanted to address it here. Yeah, thanks to uh, David Hart, Michael Ilsman, Slava Pestov, and uh, Robert Woodham yeah. for the Twitter discussion. You can find that at the Swift Unwrapped uh, Twitter account. Yeah. Um, and as always, you know, we really do want to uh, to hear more from you, especially when we get things wrong. Uh, help clarify. <laughs> um, you know, we, we welcome it, and it's why we do the show. Yeah. So... Uh, should we get into um, some of the metadata discussion that we had touched upon last time? Yeah. Um, so I think we left off just kind of briefly um, defining metadata, uh, which is basically um, the information about the types themselves. So the data about the type and uh, basically accessing uh, this is part of how this information is accessed as part of the ABI stability story. And so stabilizing the ABI in this case means providing a, a precise specification for any parts of the metadata layout that uh, will be fixed um, and then having the tools necessary to like read and write to this metadata. Parts of this can also be opaque. So this deals with determining uh, what is fixed and what the other parts of type metadata that you access through an extra function call. To right. Static layouts versus um, opaque layouts. Yep. What's determined at runtime versus at compile time. Um, so yeah, that that that's a big kind of hairy nest. And what's interesting about this is that it's always a trade-off between um, performance and flexibility. Yep. So you want to keep your options open, but um, you know, the, the extreme of that is just that everything is dynamic and uh, you can't inline anything. You can't uh, in terms of type metadata because that could change. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and you just make a runtime call every time you want to know any layout about anything, uh, but that can get pretty expensive pretty fast. Um, and of course, like you can do things like caching, but uh, ultimately it only helps so much. So if you can avoid that altogether by having statically known metadata structures, then um, you can definitely optimize for that. And this is where semantic annotations will come in to mark, say, enums as closed or it uh, or th there's there's some equivalent annotations that are being considered for other types as well, um, such as you know, having structs that uh, can or cannot have their members reordered or added. Mm -hmm. um, and then things like a uh, an order agnostic layout metadata layout algorithm where all of the statically known members of a type, uh, could be positioned at the beginning uh, in terms of the layout so that uh, those offsets are always known and stable and that any access to data members that have opaque layouts would need to go through a runtime API call, which means that you can continue to append both opaque and static layout data members to uh, a type um, while preserving the same offsets for all of the pre-existing properties or data members that it had before. So some really interesting uh, concepts that, that are being considered here to have uh, a good balance between performance and flexibility. Mm -hmm. And so these uh, 
for the aspects of the type metadata that are opaque, where you go through some accessor function to to get this metadata. So not the implementation uh, needs to be stabilized or or it can't change, but the actual function, the way through which you access that data does have to be uh, fixed. Right? Yeah, so, yeah. So this is where... Um, you know, earlier, a few episodes ago, we talked about how these six categories of ABI-relevant components overlap, and they're not all strictly independent. Type metadata also really ties into runtime, mm-hmm. um, where you know, type metadata is describing uh, not just how the static metadata will work, but also how it interoperates with the runtime aspects to determine... Um, you know, runtime level metadata information. So there's definitely some overlap there. And one thing we discussed last time in the data layout about whether types are trivial or and or uh, bitwise movable. Bitwise movable. That information is also encoded in this uh, type metadata. Uh, whether or not it has um, what are those other bits? What are they called? Um, they were called the, uh, in extra inhabitants. Extra inhabitants, yes. Yeah. Uh, so those three things uh, are also encoded in this uh, type metadata. Yeah, I mean encoded. It's more it, or well, they're defined by yes the type metadata aspects of ABI stability. Yes. 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 Uh, yeah. Um, so this this is fun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I really wonder how uh, people who are listening to us speak about this without these notes in front of them are going to understand <laughs> what we're saying out loud here. <laughs> um, so, you know, the, consider this podcast to be more of an uh, audio commentary to help you read the notes. And, um, but but that you probably should be looking at the manifesto to to really try and make sense of all this. Yeah. So I guess we can make this a little bit more concrete here, uh, pun intended. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, so for example, struct metadata stores uh, information uh, about its fields, the offsets, the field names, uh, and the field uh, metadata. Um, enum metadata stores information about its cases, the payload sizes, if there's a payload, um, and then uh, the metadata for that payload, and so on. And so uh, on. <laughs> <laughs> and there you go. Yeah, it's, it's impossible to cover all this, but um, hopefully you're getting a sense uh, from the discussion of the components that are involved and the kind of thinking that goes into uh, making types resilient, uh, which means that they can be extended over time, or uh, making them closed, which you know, specifies that you promise as a library author that you'll never change the aspects that pertain to ABI stability as part of that type. Uh, there's a lot more here about um, implementation details, what I what I would call things like um, the type metadata of protocols and existential metadata, function metadata, uh, and I think that's getting further and further away from um, the concepts that we're exposed to as uh, Swift users mm-hmm. um, that I'm not sure it's necessarily worth getting uh, too deep into. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, just know that there are considerations for things like the witness tables for protocols regarding type metadata moving forward and, and the stability of, of that. Uh, but uh, generally, when things are working, you should never have to understand that this is part of the implementation uh, as a Swift user, I would say. Yeah. Uh, do you want to talk about witness tables a little bit more? Or Oh, man, I'm not sure I completely understand what a witness table is. Um, I, I think loosely, actually, I'll let you take a crack at explaining yeah. what it is before. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not sure either. Uh, well, not 100% sure. Uh, but I... So let's first agree that we're not sure what a witness table is. Let's now um, speculate as to what it could be based off of the descriptions that we can see here. First, let's read out what the description actually says. Protocol witness table is a function table that types conformance to the protocol's interfaces. Um, So those are all words that individually I understand. Um, (laughs) What I would guess this means is that it uh, is a table that'll keep track of things like default implementations um, to protocol members. And also this table is what types, concrete types conforming to the protocol will point to um, when they conform to members of that protocol, right? So that it is... Um, a way to kind of trace for the compiler to trace back, um, and, and also for the runtime to trace back, say you're calling an interface on a concrete type that conforms to your protocol, it'll follow those pointers to know what to call, right? So mm-hmm. it's, I think you can think well, of it like an extension of the V table concept. Right. But the, uh, the definitions, like those functions themselves, uh, would be on the type, not in the witness table, right? Well, it it probably depends on how you're accessing the type, right? So if you're, um, if you have a generic function that takes uh, a generic argument of type T that conforms to protocol X, mm-hmm. um, then unless that generic function is specialized, in which case um, you've probably resolved what the concrete implementation of a protocol mm-hmm. method is, um, then at runtime, it'll probably have to go and um, and look that witness table up mm-hmm. to know which implementation to use. So the witness table contains all of the types that conform to that protocol and where to find those actual implementations? Something along those lines, yeah. Okay. I don't know if it's a table of the types or a table of the um, the interfaces themselves, mm-hmm. uh, but I think it's along these lines. Okay. Yeah, and please do write back right. <laughs> and help us understand what a witness table right. actually is. Um, you know, one thing that, that we might want to do is to look up um, the lexicon doc in uh, the Swift docs to mm-hmm. really figure out what it says there. Maybe maybe there's a different explanation. Yeah. All right. So apologies to our listeners for <laughs> uh, really not knowing what, what this is supposed to be, but <laughs> I think it's along these lines. Ask uh, Michael Ilsman for clarification. <laughs> so should we move on to mangling? Let's do that. Okay. Yeah. All right. So uh, we briefly touched on mangling in the first episode of this little series here. 
Should we first explain kind of what mangling is and what it's used for and yeah. why it exists? Yeah. All right. So mangling is the process by which to uh, transform a swift declaration into a unique uh, string of characters that can uniquely represent that declaration. So one concrete example is that, um, say, your library implements the result type, and my library implements the result type, and everyone's library implements the result type. Um, because it's not part of the standard library. Uh, it's not? Yeah. <laughs> uh, good point. Um, well, those different result types are all independent, um, really. They might share a name. They might even share um, the same declaration, everything, but... Um, or everyone has copied the result type directly into their library. Yeah. Um, so From, mangling helps us uh, differentiate between those distinct implementations of result. Um, the same thing can be said of... Uh, even within your same module, say you have some overloaded methods that return different types depending on on on, on what the caller is requesting. Or even nested types with the same name. Yeah, so there are a lot of situations in which uh, at the surface and even at the call site, a declaration can look identical to another one. Well, the Swift compiler needs a way to differentiate between those. And uh, the... The way that it does that is by kind of looking at all the components that make that declaration unique. Things like uh, what module it's part of, what its full, fully qualified uh, type name is. So, for example, um, a nested type, uh, you might be able to reference it with a shorthand syntax, not specifying the parent nested type if you're within that context, right? Or the full method signature, like what it returns, what its arguments are, um, those are all variables in the, the input soup that the mangler takes to determine what the unique mm -hmm. uh, symbol resolution identifier is, the unique mangling for that declaration is. And mangling isn't a concept that's unique to Swift. It's used by uh, C++. It's used by a lot of other languages out there um, to help uh, deal with things like templated functions or generic functions or overlaid um, declarations or even identical declarations from different modules and different namespaces. Um, so this is all to make sure that every single declaration has a unique way to reference it. Now, why is mangling important to ABI stability? Yeah, so how, how mangling plays into ABI stability is that you need a deterministic way to to mangle these names so that binaries that you've built with older versions of the Swift compiler um, can still communicate with new binaries. Um, if this mangling changed with uh, every single version of Swift, then there'd be no way for these binaries to talk to each other because they couldn't resolve yeah. uh, the, the symbol names. Not only that, but the mangling also uh, needs to be resilient to ways in which the Swift language and the Swift libraries can evolve. So if ABI stability claims that it should be possible to uh, add a default parameter to an existing function and not break ABI stability from um, uh, apps or binaries that were compiled with previous versions of that library, 
um, then uh, the Swift compiler needs to make sure that the name mangling um, for that uh, function stays the same. Um, and we're not, Jesse and I chatted about this before the show. We're not exactly sure how it can uh, guarantee this. We have some ideas, but. Yeah, so it brings up this interesting uh, aspect of Swift where, um, and this is one of the great things about Swift from a library author perspective where you have a, a certain API that you've written and when you want to update and extend this library, your existing functions, whether they're free functions or if they're uh, methods on on a type, you can add new parameters to those functions and provide uh, good default values. And that way you're, you're expanding your library, but you're not making a breaking change for uh, your, your clients as a source compatible change. And so how would the name mangling in this situation work where previously, let's say you have a function that has these two parameters, you want to release a new version of this library um, with a third parameter added, but you want to maintain source compatibility uh, for your clients so you don't have to release a new major version. So you add this third parameter with the default value, and now how is that name mangled? Um, What's interesting is when you when you're using these APIs with default parameters, Xcode's autocomplete, uh, which is powered by SourceKit, will actually show you uh, all of the permutations of this method. So in this case, you'd have it offer to autocomplete the two-parameter version or the three-parameter version, where the the two-parameter version just accepts the uh, the default parameter. Um, and so you don't have to type that out explicitly, which leads me to believe, at least initially, that these permutations are synthesized somehow. So you have a single function declaration, you have X fixed parameters and N parameters with default values. And so how does that work? Yeah. In mangling? See, I think the naive thing to, to do would be to uh, generate all of the permutations of, of that mangling. Right. Uh, but with default parameters, that gets um, crazy pretty fast right. where I, uh, I'd, I'd have to double check. But I, th- I think the complexity there is um, like for N default parameters, you have N factorial ways to uh, permute those different um those different parameters. Yes. Although maybe that's incorrect because the order needs to be preserved. The order of arguments need uh, to be that's preserved. That's true. Yes. Um, but you can before still... that wasn't true though. <laughs> that's In true. earlier versions of Swift, order did not matter. But like uh, you know, say you have an initializer with twenty default parameters. Twenty factorial is already two times ten to the power of eighteen. Like there's no way that you can synthesize all of those permutations. Um, that's just completely inefficient. Right. Your binary would be massive <laughs> yeah. if you had to do this for every single thing. So there there must be a, a smarter way to do this. Um, but the general requirement still stands that if it's um, possible with library evolution, with resilient libraries to uh, append a default parameter to an existing function that um, the previous mangling for that function needs to continue to resolve. And here's the thought. Maybe these default parameters are opaque 
And so you access them through some, or no, that wouldn't apply to mingling, right? What I think might happen here is that um, newer versions of the library can mm-hmm. um, basically fill in the blanks to determine what a shorter uh, mangled name would resolve to, like... Ah. Um, so, for example, if you have, like, um, f- Funk A, mm-hmm. and then you, in a new version of the library, you have Funk A parameter B with a default value. Well, mm-hmm. w- when this newer version of the library gets a request for the the Funk A mangled name, it can then quickly see that it doesn't have that verbatim mm-hmm. in its uh, list of unique symbol resolution identifiers of, of its list of mangled names and then determine if that's a prefix of one of its actual mangled names and if it matches that um, the on, there's a valid way to extend the shorter name that it was given with only uh, default parameters. Yeah, exactly. And that maybe we're sense. overthinking this. <laughs> yeah. However, though, uh, that makes sense for that simple case, but if you have a situation, let's say you have six parameters, the first three are do not have default values, so you must provide those. The next three do have defaults, but the caller only provides the first three and the last one. In that case, well, I guess which you, is fine. You could still have that prefix, but then you have these like. You still have these permutations, right? No, or- because then even if you're uh, opting to not use some of the intermediate parameters, mm-hmm. the mangled name is still the same because it's still the full declaration. Mm-hmm. It's just that at the call site, you've decided to opt into the default parameters for two. Of them. Yeah, for two of them. So, so they- the mangled name is still preserves the same prefix. And because Swift requires that the order of parameters um, be consistent at the call site and at a declaration site, the only way to extend such a method would be to add more, to append more default parameters at the end. So you still have this concept that the prefix is the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then in this case, you could match that suffix as well, although I'm not sure if that matters. It probably doesn't matter all that much. But then I guess for mangling to be deterministic, if you have default parameters at the beginning... Those need to be ordered in some way that... uh, If you have default parameters at the beginning, you can only ever append default parameters to that function as part of library evolution to to preserve... Uh, That's true. Yes. um, It's compatibility. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All speculation here. Mm -hmm. So one way to work around this as a library author uh, is to have a configuration object where, mm-hmm. um, exactly. I mean, you still kind of get the same issue, but um, it not it's not quite the same because uh, you, you can have, instead of having parameters, you can have members on a struct, for example. And um, one of the things that ABI stability and library evolution is aiming to do, but none of this is set in stone, is to have reorderable uh, data members in a struct. Yeah, which I think we discussed in a previous episode on this. Yeah. Yeah. And so if that ends up being being the case, then um, you can specify 
the members for that struct in any order that you choose, right? Yeah, so then when you, to extend your API without a breaking change, you'd add a new property to the struct with a default value. Um, and then perhaps in this situation, the uh, for the layout of that struct, accessing whatever has a default value could be opaque. To no, I don't account. think that's necessary. That wouldn't be necessary um, As long no. as, because you can have trivial and bitwise movable uh, data members as part of that struct. Right. Uh, yeah, because those have a static layout. Exactly, right. So yeah, yeah. Um, if if our line in thinking isn't entirely flawed, <laughs> uh, then this means that um, if you wouldn't be able to append non-default parameters to a function if it already has default parameters, but... Mm-hmm. If you pass in a configuration object um, or like an options object to that method, if that has default parameters, you can still add either default or non-default parameters to that configuration object. Yeah. So definitely some different considerations if you're a library author to think about how you want your library to be able to evolve over time while still conforming to ABI stability and library evolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this goes back to the common theme of ABI stability will mean that Swift developers no longer just need to think in terms of space, but also in terms of space and time. (laughs) Uh, So another topic here on Minglings, which I guess we've kind of touched on a little bit, is compacting Mm -hmm. these mangled names. And so you can have these minor tweaks to shorten the mangling, which would benefit the binary size of your application. So let's say you you encode uh, these symbol names with, uh, uh, you have a certain algorithm to mingle these names. And if you can uh, reduce that from, let's say like 20 characters to 17 characters or something, then additively uh, you could get some binary size wins mm-hmm. uh, by doing that. It seems like that's one of the primary discussions here, how you compress these and the trade-offs of of doing that. Yeah. Now, I'm guessing here that um, the compression is done on a uh, per-module basis mm-hmm. uh, or maybe even on a per-binary basis uh, and, and that things are decompressed at runtime so that um, the compressed uh, mangled names can vary across versions of a library, uh, but as long as the decompressed form stays the same, um, you should be able to decompress in the caller library and decompress in the library library mm-hmm. um, and still have those match up, even though the compressed forms are different. Mm-hmm. And that would allow doing things like taking the whole domain space of all mangled names in a single binary and compressing them based off of their common items together, like a dictionary compression. Right. Um, so you get the the most optimal space savings while still preserving compatibility across binaries. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing that I learned um, very recently is that uh, in order to prevent um, binaries produced prior to Swift's ABI being declared as stable from being used after that point with st- stable a- in a stable ABI setting, mm-hmm. um, 
the Swift team intends to switch uh, one of the prefixes in the mangling scheme right before they declare the ABI is stable, just so that things that kind of appear to the Swift runtime and the compiler to be stable, but aren't quite, don't accidentally try to work together. Right, right. So then at that point, you absolutely know that you have, you know exactly what what has been compiled post ABI stability right. and what has not been. Yeah. What would happen um, in this? You, th- that would be detected and you just crash or you'd, would that be detected? Yeah, you, you'd get a crash. Yeah. Um, you'd get a crash uh, at runtime and you'd probably get a uh, compilation failure at compile time okay but both of those can happen Mm -hmm. shall we move to calling convention yes please yeah so again we're a little short on time so maybe we should uh go quickly or um what do you think i don't think we can really go (laughs) across this quickly um it's kind of complex and, and involved, but it's quite relevant to discussing the runtime components of uh, ABI stability. So maybe we should keep that for a future episode. Yeah, let's do that. All right. So that's all we have for today. Uh, you can find Swift Unwrapped on Twitter, Swift underscore Unwrapped. Uh, you can find me, Jesse underscore Squires. Uh, you can find me at SimJP on Twitter. And uh, we'd encourage you to leave a review on iTunes and to check us out. Um, come and join the uh, our chat channel on spectrum.chat slash specfm slash Swift dash Unwrapped. Um, we look forward to discussing this with you. And uh, as always, feel free to uh, reply on Twitter if there's anything that you want to see clarified or that you want to clear up that we got wrong on the show. Um, see you next time. Yeah.